Welcome to this EG Investing Through Auctions podcast, where we're going to be talking about distress in the market and how that feeds into the sales process. I'm joined by three specialists across these areas. Oliver Childs, Head of Commercial Auctions at BidX1, Tim Perkin, Senior Director and Head of Recovery at CBRE, and Duncan Swift, Restructuring and Insolvency Partner at Azets. To start us off with, I wondered if you could each give us a very brief flavour of what you're working on at the moment so that we can get a bit of a handle on your different roles or the roles of your businesses um, in, in, in this area. So perhaps if I come to um, Ollie first of all at BIDX1, um, just give us a bit of insight, Ollie, into, into sort of um, into the business and how um, that feeds into um, handling distressed assets. Hi Julia, thanks very much for the introduction. Um, so I head up the UK business for uh, BIDX1. Um, we're a, a pioneering property company, um, twofold really, the skill set of our surveyors, um, where we focus across both the residential and commercial sectors, um, and also the prop tech space. Um, we own and develop our own technology. So that puts us in a really nice position to transact property uh, online, uh, either via auction or via a buy it now one-off link. Um, but either way, <clears throat> what that does is it means that at a reserve price we can sell and we can sell with the certainty of an unconditional contract. Uh, I suppose uh, what we also do is we sell over uh, fixed um, pre-published dates during the year, uh, but what's increasingly more popular now is being able to bespoke our sales um, and with the with the platform that we have we can offer a sale at any time uh, and on any day of the week and that fits in nicely I think with our client base uh, that spans many sectors but uh, as we talk about today through uh, receivership and insolvency um, we work well with uh, with these these sectors um, I guess where we can provide a transparent bespoke service to meet these clients demands. Great okay um, so Tim um, in your role at, at, at CBRE sort of what how um, what, what's your focus and how does that sort of feed into um, the auction sector? Thanks Julia uh, and um, so as, as you mentioned I head our loan recovery team at CBRE and part of that is I'm also a, a fixed charge receiver so we advise lenders on all of their options for dealing with distressed and non-performing loans, whether that be at an early stage through loan restructuring or advising on loan sales, or working with borrowers on consensual asset management or, or exit proposals and, and sales, or the final element being enforcement where it's necessary. So we regularly act as fixed charge receivers or advise insolvency practitioners and some of those assets we're working on currently include shopping centres, department stores, um, part-built residential developments, and uh, even some, some residential uh, investment port portfolios. Um, now, all of those assets, we've got to look at the best route to market. And one of those options we, we look at is, is the auction route. Um, and we've uh, worked very well with, with BIDX um, over the last couple of years and, and sold some very interesting assets with them. 
Excellent. Okay. Um, and Duncan Swift at, um, at Azet, um, so you're you're focusing on restructuring and insolvency. What could you just sort of flesh that out a little bit for us? What you're working on at, at the moment, just to give yeah, us. Yeah. Thanks, a Julian. As you mentioned, uh, I'm Duncan Swift. I'm a restructuring insolvency partner at Azet. Uh, I'm a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency practitioner. And I'm also the immediate past president of R3, which is the Association of Business Recovery Professionals for the UK. Um, I've been in practice for over 30 years, and during that time I've specialised uh, particularly in food production and processing, which is a type of nationally recognised specialism, uh, working with uh, in agriculture, horticulture and primary and secondary food processors. And I've also got a type of subsidiary specialism uh, in type of failed property developments across the UK. And the work that I'm currently doing reflects those specialisms. Uh, for instance, I'm presently working with a lunchbox uh, food product manufacturer uh, that's seen uh, school lunchboxes uh, substantially reduced in demand. Uh, and trying to help that business through uh, that demand reduction, uh, possibly through to a sale of business because um, it's lacking sufficient capital to uh, meet the upturn in demand that's expected as the lockdown recedes. Um, and I'm also presently tracking monies that are missing in certain failed property development schemes, uh, predominantly in and around the north of England. Yeah, I think the effects of the pandemic in terms of causing distress it is uh, a very uneven impact. Uh, it's causing acute distress by accelerating changes in, say, the retail uh, area. Uh, it's causing acute distress in hospitality, leisure, casual dining uh, territory, uh, ho uh, hotels, anything where there's there's person-to-person -person interaction. And that's largely due to the demand shocks uh, caused by the lockdowns that we've seen. Um, the, but but I, say, as I say it's uneven because those are the very deep pockets of acute distress. But actually, if you look at the rest of the UK SME marketplace, uh, the distress has been alleviated. Thanks for that. So let's go into a bit more detail now on the effects of the pandemic on businesses. Um, how serious is it at this stage, Duncan? HM government support mechanisms have effectively reduced uh, corporate insolvency volumes by over 30% throughout the pandemic. Gosh, yeah. It's only in these pockets of social interaction uh, in the uh, economic uh, community that we're seeing real acute distress, real uh, need for insolvency procedures and protections to safeguard businesses and uh, possibly to transact them. But in relation to the rest of the marketplace, um, it's been a type of steady she goes, awash with liquidity and waiting to see how the lockdown will unwind. Mm. Um, Tim, what, what what are your thoughts on on that? Sort of the the you know how much are we seeing new situations yeah. of distress and how much are things sort of just rolling on from pre-pandemic? So I, I agree with Duncan that there was already certain pockets of significant distress. You know the retail market, and also we'd seen quite a lot a lot of activity pre the pandemic. Uh, in the development market where there was some contractor insolvencies leading to issues um, on lending. Um, and I think since the pandemic 
it's undoubtedly accentuated, accentuated the volume of distress, but we've generally seen a lower volume than many people predicted, in part due to the uh, government support, but I think also lenders have been very supportive and provided time where the borrowers, I mean, particularly where the borrowers are communicative and making efforts to work with their lenders to resolve those problems. So I, I think there's a question of when we're going to see greater volumes come through, because at the moment there is generally that support we're seeing. Mm. Ollie, does that tie in with 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 what you're seeing? I mean, I know you know you've been handling um, various sort of situations and in the, in, the, in the retail side, but perhaps those had you know really had their origins long before the pandemic. Yeah, I, I agree with um, both Duncan and Tim. I think sort of pre-pandemic, we Jeff, uh, or where were we? Sort of January 2020. So after the December 19 election, we we started uh, last year um, with an upward curve, and um, there was a lot of pent up demand. And actually, uh, the sort of receivership and insolvency cases that we saw uh, were generally sort of legacy cases, uh, and the new cases that were probably being talked about were retail um, shopping centres and uh, part built development sites and that that's I, I suppose where the noise was um, and then we entered uh, the pandemic and, and the lockdown and, and 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 as Tim just said you know actually lenders um, <clears throat> whether that was the traditional lenders or, or, or perhaps new relatively new lenders to the market who who haven't seen a, a downturn <clears throat> before um, I think as long as their borrowers were communicating with them, then you know they wanted to listen and they wanted to try and make sure that they they structured um, an exit strategy or 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 they worked with that borrower to to see them through. So it'll be interesting, I think, over the next six months to see um, where stock levels go to. My own opinion is that we'll see stock levels rise, but I'm not sure when that will start to happen. I think we. I probably predicted that uh, to have happened already, but I think with the government support that we've seen, I suspect that that perhaps may be um, into into next year now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that government government support, as you, you've each said, has been yeah had had a very very significant impact. Um, so and also we know that the sort of the, the big lenders prior to um, to the pandemic were in or in the run up to the to the crisis caused by the pandemic, the, the big lenders were behaving quite differently to to um, uh, before the global financial crisis. Um, so are you anticipating sort of um, uh, lenders going forward to um, different types of lender to behave differently? Um, perhaps peer-to-peer, -peer, unregulated, those doing bridging loans, um, as opposed to the big lenders who've really sort of changed their behaviours. Perhaps put that one to you, um, Duncan, first. Well, I'd uh, echo what uh, Tim said earlier, which is that uh, the lender market, it doesn't matter which type of lender it is, uh, are in generally a forbearance mode. Uh, where they will listen to the um, management of the situations of their customers uh, as borrowers um, and will generally seek to support them and not foreclose um, whilst everyone seeks to find their way out of the pandemic lockdown effects. Um, I th the, the 
one of the big drivers i suspect in terms of uh changes will not necessarily just be the uh, withdrawal of government financial support packages but crucially the uh removal of the suspension of creditor enforcement rights which comes into play presently at the end of june uh, now the government has got the leeway to extend it if it decides and we've seen that it will do at short notice in the past uh, it's got the leeway to extend the um, moratorium on enforcement of uh, rights through to the end of september mm -hmm. up to and through to the end of september now uh, you've got uh, billions upon billions of pounds of unpaid rent liability to landlords and uh, with an amount of tenants that span tenants who are capable of paying but choose not to through to tenants who will never be able to repay uh, unless something uh, fundamentally changes in their business that's in addition to any restoration of demand for whatever products or services they supply um, and that's the area where I think there will be a real driver of um, uh, property coming to market where situations have been foreclosed but the foreclosure has been driven by the landlord or uh, other major creditor rather than necessarily the lenders themselves ah okay yeah so is is that um does that tie in um with with what what you're seeing tim as well then yes absolutely julia and i think um the key is we're, we're not seeing any particular type of lender act um more precipitously um, or actually take uh, action more aggressively. Um, they're all being supportive. Um, there's a lot of questions from, from all types of lenders about um, what we're seeing in the market. They're keen to see what activity there is in the market. Um, and actually, it's all this trying to second guess where there's limited activity. Is it worth, is there any first mover advantage of, of trying to act on a, an asset quickly? Or do you need to see um, some activity in a market moving before you want to bring your assets out? So there's a lot of questions being asked and lots of discussions and, and careful thought being given by all types of lenders about the way forward. Now, I think one, in, one factor which might uh, start to impact on changes between different types of lenders is actually where the lender's own funding is coming from. And you need to remember that um, you know, non-bank lenders funding are coming from a variety of different sources and there will be time limits on that. If you've got loan on loan maturity, for instance, or you've got fund maturity coming up with investors, specific investor requirements, that might, we might start to see some impact because of that on decisions being made. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So, <clears throat> so that might affect sort of time frame for decision making um, as we move move forward. Um, Absolutely. And so Julia, if I, if I can just add to Tim's point on first mover advantage, it's not just the lending community that are, uh, are contemplating whether there's any first mover advantage. It's also the private equity and overseas investors that are looking at that as well. UK assets generally are uh, fairly uh, underpriced, uh, dare I say, compared with uh, international peers, um, which was an early effect of the pandemic. Um, and 
now is the time perhaps for uh, assets to be purchased on the cheap uh, before uh, values restored um, and it, it so that there's that first mover advantage is it's a rather more complicated equation uh, so you've got um, banks lenders generally you've got management also wondering about it particularly if they've got any um, capital with which to make acquisitions themselves plus you've got then uh, these acquisitive private equity and international players also joining the party all jostling for position a bit like starting grids of formula one uh, as to who's going to be first round the bend when the uh, lights turn green we'll see yeah, no, that's a that's a brilliant analogy. Um, Ollie, do you want to come in there at all on on that sort of that issue of of timing and first mover advantage? Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing is more discussions that than we've had for a long time with lenders, uh, and and as both Duncan and Tim have said already. Uh, they're working very intelligently and and actually really trying to read the market and and uh, and, and jostle for that position. Um, what I've noticed over the years is when we're instructed by uh, an insolvency practitioner or a, a receiver, um, you know the the instruction runs with them. It may be a personal appointment, um, and we don't really have discussions with with the lenders in the background. But certainly since. Um, the end of last year, um, we're finding that lenders uh, do want to speak with the agent. They do want to speak with the auctioneer. Um, it goes back to my point where perhaps there are there are slightly newer lenders in the market who who haven't seen this position before. So there's uh, an, an element of uh, them wanting to understand the market more closely. Um, and I think uh, we've all moved online now, uh, and that's um, a relatively new way of selling. Um, obviously, we 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 took that sort of first move advantage uh, a number of years ago, and uh, I think lenders want to speak to us and understand how our business now operates. So that should they find themselves in a position where they decide that they need to dispose stock via um, a receiver or, or an insolvency practitioner, then they understand the route to market fully, so that they are making that that correct decision. Mm. Um, and just just thinking about how that that process might unfold, um, it, are there sort of some easy answers as to whether whether that's going to lead to loan sales or whether it's going to lead to asset sales? Is there how how does that sort of distinction arise? Um, Duncan, could you um, explain that decision making process to us? Your loan sales or asset sales? <laughs> or asset sales? Uh, Sorry, it's a big question. From my experience, but I, I think <laughs> I'd characterise as loan sales as um, a lender selling a distressed loan portfolio or a single loan to mm. uh, a workout um, uh, fund, for instance, or um, if it's an asset um, disposal, it's that the uh, lend is foreclosed and uh, there is some form of insolvency procedure or uh, a property you know, fixed charge receiver appointment uh, to realise a, a a particular asset or a collection of assets that may maybe a business is a going concern. Um, what will drive volumes? Uh, the and which is the the likely output? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, we're this is um, pandemics. Who who would have expected it? But um, 
Uh, the, the last major pandemic experience being back in 2003 and largely confined to what Southeast Asia. Uh, here we've got a global pandemic. It's completely different. I, I, some of the effects were predictable uh, and were predicted, and uh, I can give you some sources on that. But um, nobody's uh, then looked at the type of uh, macroeconomic effects uh, post-pandemic of what uh, that translates into in terms of um, the uh, recessionary outputs and volume of uh, closures or uh, sales of distressed loans. Mm. Um, all I can say based upon my over 30 years of experience in sector is that there is always been more uh, failures of business and foreclosures of whatever description and thereby distress loan positions as uh, an economy comes out of a recession. And why is that? That's because uh, in, mo in the majority of instances, the businesses as they come out of the recession are faced with the double whammy of repaying historic debt, which and we know that they've built up historically high levels of uh, liabilities during the course of the pandemic, whether provided by HM government or by landlords or from other sources. And they're also seeking to uh, gear up their working capital to meet increased demand is the greatest economic fallout. Tim, would you do you want to add anything there on on sort of you know uh, loan sales versus asset sales? What you're expecting to see? Yes. Um, um, so I think the the loan sales point. Obviously, um, we saw a lot of loan sales um, at the back end of the, the global financial crisis, and uh, a lot of I think. If you looked at the, the lenders you had then, the number of lenders was much smaller. They were bank institutions, they had much bigger volumes on their books. And I think when you get, you know, they had the capital adequacy tests um, uh, starting on them. And actually, I think that encouraged the, the loan sales because they needed to deleverage quickly. From speaking to the lenders now, um, they're looking at loan sales in a very different way. They're not looking at the volume. There is obviously a, a large book. One of the, the national lenders is, is has out in the market at the moment. Um, but generally, the lenders are looking at smaller books um, or single asset loan sales. Now, the decisions then come down to who, who the buyers are and what, what are they buying for. I think if you're looking at a single, single asset or a single loan sale, it's going to come down to where the pricing is and actually who your buyer is. Your buyer may well be, if they're going to buy the loan, looking at some kind of loan to own strategy. Ah, so that, that the buyer strategy and uh, the, the, the scale of the exit is going to be what the considerations are for lenders now. Yeah. So what's the depth of demand like for these assets? Is distress making the pricing more accessible to private investors? Ollie, could I ask you first on that? Well, what we've noticed over the last 12 to 18 months is how robust the auction market is, and that is mainly fueled by the private investor. And what we've seen is that there is debt available in the market, and there are a lot of private investors who are entrepreneurial and are sitting on a lot of cash. Um, and I suppose we're now seeing with the ability of an online auction to bespoke a sale, so we're not reliant on a fixed sales strategy in terms of time frame, we can sell a wider asset type um, and 
two examples that we've had either a, a retail park or, or some shopping centres over the last so six to nine months where you know, lot sizes up to almost about eight million pounds have been sold on our platform. Um, you know, these are assets which um, have been in either an insolvency or a receivership um, position. And they are not just at a price point which is typically higher than you would traditionally see as an auction, um, but they're a lot more complicated. So, you know, where you might have a, a typical auction lot of £500,000 with a, a legal pack of 10 documents, you know, this might be an asset for £4 million, but the legal pack has 600 documents in there. You know, that's a lot of uh, due diligence that a buyer and their solicitors will need to undertake, and they'll need a period of time to do that. Um, but what we've seen is that the private investor is very resourceful. They've always been like that. But they've now got access to a product type that um, they couldn't have perhaps purchased 10 years earlier. You know, some of these uh, shopping centres that have been out in the market were purchased for perhaps, you know, 30, 40 million pounds 10 years ago. And the price point now is, is perhaps closer to 5 million pounds. So, um, you know, these buyers are resourceful. Um, and I think we're in a market at the moment where if you try and sell them private by the private treaty route, um, you do give buyers uh, time to prevaricate and uh, they believe that there aren't many buyers in the market for this type of product. So they'll, they'll try and weigh you down uh, and buy it cheap and, 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 and prolong the sale process. Whereas actually with that auction contract, um, the, the flexibility of our platform can make the process as long or as short as, as you want. And that can then be changed once you're in the market. So, you know, if we if we gave an asset, for example, an eight-week marketing period, which is what we did with our retail park uh, up in Cumbernauld near Glasgow at the end of last year, uh, market demand was such that actually from the start of marketing to completion took only four weeks, and that was for um, an asset of just under eight million pounds. So, you know, that buyer demand with all of that due diligence to undertake um, actually drove the, drove the process faster than we expected, uh, but we had the flexibility to, to do that. So I think the private investor with the certainty of the auction contract and the focus of that auction date uh, does allow sales uh, to happen in a timely way, but still ensuring that our client uh, achieves um, best value but most importantly, in a, in a, in a transparent process mm -hmm. so that it's an inclusive environment um, and everyone's been given the same opportunity. Excellent. Yeah, that 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 issue of access is is um, a, a really interesting one. And perhaps I, I should go back here really to Duncan and Tim to ask sort of, you know, as, as we think about these assets um, coming to being brought to market, when you're working with clients, how does um, how, how do you reach a decision on whether to go through a, a, a private treaty route or auction? And is, is there some sort of shifting um, going going on in, in making that decision um are you feeling any sort of more inclined to put larger um asset sizes perhaps above five million through to to the auction route um or or is there a sort of clear cut off where private treaty is seen as as the the right way to go um duncan would you mind sharing your thoughts on that first gosh that's a very uh, complicated question dealing with these mm. first I, I think the uh the take-up of online auction uh, it, 
it, it transcends the pandemic. It's it's there. It's uh, it's it's evolved. It's proven. Uh, the the pandemic coming along, I think, just goes serves to prove it as a model uh, that provides delivery of uh, efficient outputs, less hassle, wider market coverage. Um, it's here to stay, uh, and if not, be the dominant form of um, property sale of whatever size and value. Uh, I don't think that uh, I've sold properties that via uh, online auction of a couple of hundred thousand as the top of indicative starting point through to several million. Um, so. And I, I do find it as an office holder in a there's an administration or a liquidation, it's a very efficient uh, means of demonstrating to all parties that you've got best value for an asset, as well as having, as I say, I think what feels like an inherent advantage of getting far wider coverage than going straight to private treaty. I, I can see private treaty still got a place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where's that place? And I think that's that's really in... Um, uh, where you're in a particularly specialist niche of a market where a property may have, may be of a certain size and of a certain value, but only really to a handful of uh, operators who already, essentially trade purchasers, who are already operating that marketplace. And what am I talking about? I mean, I've not dealt with one recently, but I've come close. An oil refinery. I would imagine has a very few uh, number of parties who are capable of uh, taking, being allowed to take control, let alone having the capital to want to uh, acquire and take control of um, a major petrochemical facility. Uh, And for that reason, I would anticipate the private treaty would have more of a place in uh, for that type of property assets because of the uh, very specialist nature for which the property is being used. But if if the uh, property's got a, a multiplicity of possible uses, uh, an alter, including alter, you know, alternative use basis, then auction uh, in terms of um, enabling that property to be offered to a far wider market audience uh, is, I think, the inevitable way to, to go. And uh, I've talked about recessionary effects, and I don't want to, I don't want anybody to get away from this conversation that I'm being pessimistic. What we what, what I think we're seeing out there at the moment, uh, perversely perhaps, is a very buoyant buyer market. I've talked about UK assets being relatively uh, devalued compared with other international assets. Uh, I've talked about equity houses and. Um, uh, other investors, you know, jostling for position uh, on on the, on the grid, and I include in that private investors with uh, capital wherewithal. There's a lending market, as Oliver's mentioned, who are prepared to provide lending to all of those particular players on the on the grid if they've got a compelling uh, business plan as to why it is that that acquisition will assist the development of their business. Uh, so at the moment, um, uh, I, I can see there's, there's very good platforms for delivery and there's very good appetite out there for acquisition. Mm, yeah, excellent. So, yeah, there's uh, there's clearly a lot of cash out there. And from your perspective, um, the, the price point doesn't really now sort of affect 
um, uh, or doesn't certainly doesn't put you off advising to go down an auction route. Um, Absolutely right. So, Tim, with that, does that tie in with with your discussions with with clients? Is 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 auction becoming um, more <clears throat> more of a sort of mainstream route? Um, so since the advent of online auctions. Yeah, so Julia, I, I think I my, my view is slightly different uh, from Duncan's in that I think there is still uh, much more room for private treaty sales, particularly for larger, more complex assets where um, I know Ollie gave the example that um, you can give people time to review all of the due diligence prior to an auction deadline. But I think on the more complex assets uh, and particularly the larger ones where there's maybe institutions looking to buy, um, they they're still unwilling to do a lot of that due diligence ahead of bidding uh so there needs to so that point of the auction is the point of exchange i think there's still quite a lot of assets where a private treaty sale will be better suited to that notwithstanding that um you know and the key here is each asset you you there's no hard and fast rule you need to consider each asset on its merits and the best route to market the best timing of sale in order to achieve our you know achieve our duties of, uh, of securing best price um but we've certainly seen the auction market moving in terms of the assets where lenders would be willing uh, for us to put it down an, an asset into an auction. I think a few years ago, you found that uh, some lenders were particularly um, had a very rigid set of rules about what assets they thought were auction um, lots. That has certainly um, broadened out, and I think. Um, it's much more recognised the benefits of the auction of actually you're, you've got a defined time period. You can set that. There's uh, the auctions are much more flexible than they used to be, as Ollie said about. You can set dates, you can um, move them around, um, and provide all of that additional information online, which maybe wasn't previously as accessible for a bidder. Um, so I do think there's um, auctions are delivering a, a much better option for a greater variety of assets than they did previously. Mm. But I wouldn't use them solely um, uh, to the um, detriment of, of private treaty sales. And yeah. I think there's also times where, particularly where you've got issues with both timing and potentially holding costs, um, there's, there's the potential to consider a mix and match approach and actually using a private treaty sale if you don't achieve within the time you're looking at uh, a successful outcome you can use an auction as a backstop now that isn't a a new thing we we were talking to auctioneers and, and using that as a tool uh, 10 years ago in the in the gfc so uh, i think it's about making sure you're using the right tool and uh, considering all of the circumstances and issues around the asset you're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. just picking up on Tim's mix and match message, uh, that also works in the sense of if a, if a, uh, using an auction as a tool to then move to a private treaty basis, if uh, a number of parties indicate that they are sufficiently serious to deliver on a private treaty basis and need the time to do so compared with whatever auction timetable has been set, by putting the property into the auction, uh, the placement of it is giving a clear signal to the market that it's up for sale and will be sold. Uh, and that sometimes is what's needed to that commitment of sale 
is what's needed to really get some of the major institutional players uh, to flag that they are uh, committed to acquiring it uh, and uh, to then approach to ask if it can be taken off the auction timetable and onto a private treaty basis. Yeah, perhaps a final word to you, Ollie, on that before we wrap up. Are you, do you, are you expecting the auction backstop to be um, quite a feature going forward? I just look at the type of product that we're reviewing at the moment for some of our clients, Julia. Um, it, a lot of it does look like what one would consider typical auction stock, uh, sub, sub a million pounds all over the UK, mixed use. Um, but actually, uh, over recent months, um, you know, we've we've started looking at um, higher value assets and whether that's student accommodation, uh, shopping centres, car dealerships, um, larger park completed developments. And, you know, three of those um, different sectors, the student accommodation, the car dealerships and shopping centres. You know, as auctioneers, we are always seen as a fast method of sale well you know we're only as fast as uh, the auction dates that we put out to our clients and if we're only putting out six or seven dates a year and you you just miss a date and you've got to wait for a, a new sale date then you know that's not very efficient and it isn't necessarily that that fast so if you can say to your client well you tell me when you would like an auction. You know, that's what I should be doing here. I'm an agent. I'm saying that I can achieve you. I should be the first route to market, not the last route to market. And I can get you a, a better price. And I can I can provide you with an audit trail and transparency to make sure that you're comfortable, that you're making the right decision to appoint us. When would you like an auction? And to me, that's the most important thing that I can do. If I can give our clients the choice to instruct us when they want to and set out a sales strategy that they feel comfortable with, then I think that's what we should be doing. And, and you know, I think that's where the market is going. And, uh, you know, I hope that BidX1 are at the forefront of that. Perfect. Thank you all so much. Um, thank you to Ollie Childs, Duncan Swift and Tim Perkin. Um, you've given us a great insight into, into what's happening at the moment and how things, things might unfold over the next few months. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.